This is the Blue Tarp, stories of Alaska's northern Susitna Valley as told by those who lived them. Thank you for joining us as we embark on our second season. For the next eight episodes, we'll take a look at some of the notable events from past and present and annual occurrences and one-offs. We're starting off with the liveliest weekend during the darkest time of year. Whether you're an old-timer or a newcomer, there's room under the blue tarp for everyone. One of the more common questions visitors ask Talkeetna residents is what we do in the winter. We're starting off our second season by answering part of that question. The first Saturday in December is typically bustling on Talkeetna's Main Street for the Wilderness Woman Contest. The contest has been going on for about 35 years. On the former KTNA program Nuggets in 2007, Marnie Gunderson and Pam Rannells explained a little about Wilderness Woman and its origins to host Clyde Connolly. And, and I think this, it started five years after the actual Bachelor Ball started and auction. It started five years later because uh, the Bachelors used to put on a little show, little skits and stuff. And the finale was always grand. It was a grand finale, you know, like a bunny boot ballet and and Fredericks of Hollywood where these bachelors actually dressed up, put makeup on, did lingerie show, did a bunny boot ballet. Well, you know, it it come to a point where I said, well, you just can't top that finale. So we're going to have to do something else to draw these women in and let's do this, this uh, competition. And perhaps they'll you know, that will draw more women. They'll, they'll be able to do something themselves, you know, a competition of their own. So that's kind of how the Wilderness Woman started. And it kicks off a good dynamic between the bachelors and the bachelorettes, too, because these women are just getting in town on the train, some of them pulling into town, and it gets things going right away, breaks the ice. The bachelors are out there helping with the competition, and they're sitting there, and women are slapping bologna and cheese or whatever <laughs> on their laps and a sandwich, and... It just gets things going early. It's outside the Fairview. There's usually a fire, and people can go in for drinks and hang out in the Fairview as well. And um, it's a good time just to start kind of breaking the ice and, and getting ready for the auction. If, it would be a totally different auction if you just walked into the auction without having that competition and the daily activities beforehand. And it's not totally bachelorettes and bachelors either. I mean, there's kids and families coming to watch it, and it's more of a town event as well going on during the daytime that people might not be able to go to if they yeah, can't go it, to the auction and the yeah. ball and whatnot. It really does have a real boost to the town the first Saturday of, of December. You know, that's a cold, dark time of year, and it brings a lot of people to town. It's a, it's really a, a fun event. Plus, there's uh, the crown, the Wilderness Woman crown, is usually a hat, a fur, uh, that's made by one of the local trappers or whoever. And uh, so to get a fur hat and sometimes the, the prize is a golden nugget and then there's prizes, you know. So that, it's a little bit of an incentive there. Where do these women come from to participate? Are they good? Well, hopefully all around. We get <laughs> all more over of them the everywhere, world. Everywhere, all over the world. <laughs> we need some of those foreign girls to entice the local boys, too, to come down. So, uh, like, last year I think there was... Is it a Belgian film crew or from the Netherlands? Um, I think there was a year before. Yeah, that was the year before last. And uh, third place was she was a gold medalist in judo. 
and uh, she took third place in the so it's it's I tell you what you know they think it's really easy to come do this wilderness woman contest but Nancy Pease in her you know who Nancy Pease is I mean she's you know great Alaskan she didn't even qualify in the top five you know and then we get this Belgium gold medalist you know and she placed third so our women got a lot of on the ball around here we can really make sandwiches <laughs> 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 a good Over the years, the contest has grown and evolved. One thing that has remained constant, however, is attempting to capture the feel of tasks required to live off-grid in the Susitna Valley. The contest starts off with all the competitors racing to carry two five-gallon buckets of water down Main Street. Some years they're required to wear certain footwear, some years they can wear whatever they brought with them. Margaret Maxner, then Margaret Denkewalter, competed in the mid to late 2000s. She says locals can come into the competition with a bit of an advantage. I kind of had an idea of what some of the events were. And I remember thinking to myself that I had some very distinct advantages over the other competitors. The first was, at that time, in 2007, you had to wear bunny boots for the competition. And I came in my own bunny boots because my mother used to buy them for us from that box truck in Meadow Lakes, which I haven't seen in a long time, but that was like a, that was a thing. You went to the box truck in Meadow Lakes and you bought bunny boots. So I had my own bunny boots. That was advantage number one. And advantage number two was I looked around at sort of what these events were, and I remember thinking to myself, oh, these are chores. These are, these are just chores. We grew up without running water. We had a dog team. So carrying two five-gallon buckets of water without spilling any on myself was, you know, that was something that I was quite good at already. So that was my, my advantages over the, the competition at that time. Um, and the third advantage I remember was that I was at that time very good at opening a can of beer, which is one of the, one of the things you have to do. Before we continue, I should clarify an important topic. Bunny boots. Despite the name, these are footwear for humans. They were developed for the U.S. military for Arctic deployments and keep feet warm down to minus 65 degrees Fahrenheit. The trade-off is that they're bulky, heavy, and don't have the greatest traction. They're also not exactly a fashion statement, but that tends to be less important. Being accustomed to wearing the boots could indeed provide a significant advantage in years when they're required. One local competitor who remembers the water hauling event well is Shu Salaski. Back in 1988, Shu was living a true wilderness life and decided to try her hand at the contest. Still had my dog team out at the cabin, um, but I came in, I mushed into Talkeetna for what was the Wilderness Woman contest, and I thought, well, I'll try that. You know, I, I, I got bunny boots. I got a snow machine suit. I carry five-gallon buckets full of stuff everywhere. While Shu had the skills needed to be a wilderness woman in real life, an oversight during the competition kept her from competing for the crown. Uh, they had us go one at a time, and we'd start in front of the Fairview. We... Um, I don't think we started in our bunny boots and snow machine suits. I think we had to, you know, they'd uh, shoot the gun. We'd have to step, you know, get into our bunny boots, get into our snow machine suit, grab 
two empty five-gallon buckets in front of the Fairview, run lickety-split down Main Street to the far end. Um, what was even down there back then? Oh, the Bucket of Blood. That's where it was, the Bucket of Blood uh, cabin at the end of Main Street. We stopped there, and somehow we had to fill up our buckets with water. And I don't recall whether they just had a huge tub and we filled them up or... I don't, I don't remember how we did that. However, I was so excited because I was really making time. I just, you know, got my boots on, got my snow machine suit on, got the buckets, and I ran all the way down there. So excited. Yeah, shoot, that's great. Yeah, go. I just turned around, and I ran all the way back. Lickety split really fast, too. And when I got back, they went, eh, DQ. I forgot to fill up my buckets with water. <laughs> In front of the bucket, bucket of blood, I was so excited that, you know, just kind of wrapped up in the moment. So I got disqualified before I really even got going there. Um, so that's my wilderness woman thing. But I kept thinking, oh, man, too bad they didn't have a poop scooping event because I had been training. I had been pooping scoop for, well, what, seven or eight years by then, and I was really good at it. So I suggested that they add that to the event next, you know, the following year, but I'm not sure that that ever happened. Shu decided not to enter the contest in subsequent years, though kept living her real-life wilderness woman lifestyle. While hauling water buckets is only about one of a dozen total tasks, it takes the bulk of the afternoon, since as many as 50 women sometimes compete. Former local competitor Laura Wright says it significantly pairs down the competition. The water haul is really about strength and speed, whereas the actual event does have some skill involved. Laura says there can be a little bit of luck involved, depending on when a competitor makes her run. As the water hauling progresses, people spill the water and then that turns to ice, so the competitors after them are slipping and sliding. Since the five finalists are chosen from all the runs, a slippery surface could slow a racer down. While strength and speed are indeed very important components of an event that involves carrying almost 85 pounds of water, Margaret Maxner explains that there is some technique involved. She also agrees that going early can be better. You can't just let them hang straight. You have to flex your shoulders and bend your elbows so that the water jugs don't bump against your legs as you sort of like speed shuffle down Main Street. (laughs) Right. And going early is helpful because then you aren't just racing down these like glaciers of ice water from people who have spilled their buckets running back. After all the runs are complete, the five women with the fastest times, including penalties for spilled water, move on to the finals. When we come back, we'll take a look at what other events determine who will take home the Wilderness Woman crown. The Sheldon Family is a proud supporter and sponsor of KTNA's podcast, The Blue Tarp. As a part of Talkeetna's story, from the late 1930s when Don worked at Frank Jenkins Mine, to his epic flying career through Talkeetna Air Service, Roberta, with her passion to preserve the history of Talkeetna, to Robert, Kate, and families, in their business efforts to keep their parents' spirits alive. The Sheldon Chalet, Alaska Retreat, and the Sheldon Mountain House are all their efforts to ensure that Talkeetna's story and history remain vibrant for generations to come. For more information, contact Marnie Sheldon 
at 907-733-2414 or visit www.sheldonchalet.com. Welcome back. After the finalists for the Wilderness Woman contest are determined, they move on to two obstacle course style events, which are also timed. The competitor with the fastest combined time from all three rounds will go on to be that year's Wilderness Woman. Laura Wright made the finals multiple times in the late 1990s and explains some of what the finalists have to do, beginning with the most tongue-in-cheek section of the contest. Oh, how could I forget? You First you start off running across Main Street making the sandwich, it has to have meat, cheese, a condiment, between two pieces of bread, and a beer, and then you deliver that to the bachelor who's sitting across the street in a lawn chair with a plastic bag on them because you're going to throw that at them any way you can because time is of the essence. Then you run, you after you deliver that sandwich and beer, you run over to the fishing hole, and then they had these... Um, poles with long treble hooks on them and then they had this uh, pool set up on the ground which was basically a bunch of styrofoam fish laying horizontally on the ground with a, a line delineating the end of the of the fishing uh, hole and you had to throw your cast your line out there and hook that fish in the foam and then however you could drag it past the line before you could go. You had to take that fish and put it in your backpack. That's right. Then run to the village park, put on snowshoes, and then you were given a pellet gun and you had to shoot two balloons on a, um, on a board that represent, represented ptarmigan. Then you ran around and yeah, you must have taken off your snowshoes Run up a ladder, rung a bell, you ran into the moose, so you had to shoot with your pellet gun. You still had to keep track of everything, the gun, the, the fish, the snowshoes. Now, go through a culvert, I don't know, jump on the snow machine. I mean, it just went on and on. Anyway, um, I did okay on the sandwich-making part. The fish, it was painful. I mean, it got painful to watch me trying to catch that fish. And I realized later, besides the fact that I don't know how to fish and I didn't know how to cast and my line get all tangled, the colder it is, the less uh, that treble hook is going to go into the styrofoam. Now, in the interest of full disclosure, I should say that I've been part of the Talkeetna Bachelor Society for most of my time here, and that's included judging and announcing for a few wilderness woman contests. I can tell you a couple of things about Laura's story. First, being the bachelor in the lawn chair isn't as nice as it might sound. Sure, you get five bologna sandwiches and cheap cans of beer, but they typically come at you with a fair bit of velocity, meaning you get more frozen foam and mustard than anything else. It is outside in December, after all. Also, Laura is far from the only person to have trouble with the fishing event. Corinne Marzullo was a finalist 20 years later and also struggled to hook a styrofoam salmon. Uh, I think that's actually what uh, killed me in that event was, uh, um, yeah, I couldn't catch the fish. The fish, it was really cold that year, and uh, the fish just didn't want to stay on the hook. <laughs> and that's why you came in second. Maybe, I don't know. Yeah. 
Corinne ended up getting second in that year's contest. These days, the fish and tackle are magnetized, so actually sinking a hook in rock-hard frozen foam isn't an issue anymore. When a local woman makes it through to the finals, she ends up with a fair bit of extra pressure, since she's representing the locals. In 2008, for the program Nuggets, host Tina Dalkey took to the streets on the day of the contest to gauge the crowd. Do you have any picks for the for the Wilderness Women contest before we get underway with the finals here? <laughs> Team Mullet. <laughs> I don't know. Team Mullet. She had a tough time cutting that wood. And you? Tanya Pacino. Tanya. Got to go with the local. Or Margaret Dinkwalter. Yeah, I was going to say. And so far, do you have any picks for who's going to take home the, oh, I do. the fur hat? Number eight. Number oh, okay. eight. Well, I was going to pick my sister. Just I think number. I think Margaret will do it. Okay. Yeah. All right, great. Be great. <laughs> and you guys are visiting from Anchorage. From Anchorage. You're voting for number eight. We're hoping number eight wins. Oh, great. Great. And she's doing well. How, she's got. She's in the finals now? And, in the finals. Okay. All right. And this might be her best event. Oh, the um, ptarmigan shoe. Yeah, the sandwich making, she doesn't ever be. And in between events, the loose dogs having a great time. Yeah, that's If you didn't catch it, number eight was Margaret Denkewalter, now Margaret Maxner. She remembers being the only local in her first finals run. I remember being the only competitor from Talkeetna that made it through the bucket run both years. But, of course, they only take five. Um... And so the other women were all had come in from, um, I think, mostly Anchorage, but, you know, Wasilla and, and the Valley. I don't know if there were any out-of-state competitors in either of the years that I competed, but it was, these were some very fit women. Margaret finished second that year, but it would not be her last attempt at the Wilderness Woman crown. When we come back for part three of this episode, we'll be discussing some winners of the contest over the years, including speaking to some who you've already heard from in this episode. You are listening to KTNA's podcast, The Blue Tarp. Your business can be a part of sharing the history and culture of our community by becoming a sponsor. It's easy to do. Simply call 907 733 1700 or email supportktna at ktna.org. Information about sponsorships for this podcast can be found at ktna.org under the blue tarp. Welcome back. By the time the Wilderness Woman contest ends, the sun is usually sinking very low in the sky at the late hour of about 2.30 p.m. Remember, December in Alaska. The crowds disperse, with many cleaning up and getting dressed for the night's big event, the Talkeetna Bachelor Auction and Ball. We'll be covering the auction in full in Episode 2, but let's touch on the beginning of the event, which includes the crowning of the Wilderness Woman. The top three finalists get called up and presented with their prizes. Both Corinne Marzullo and Margaret Maxner say they got pieces of gold nugget jewelry for their second-place finishes. Both still have them though Margaret's took a little vacation in a Chicago pawn shop while she was studying at Loyola University. And I remember I won this beautiful gold nugget piece of jewelry, just a gorgeous piece. I still have it. Um, Although when I was at nursing school, I did actually have to pawn it 
to buy textbooks. <laughs> but I remember convincing the guy there in, you know, the north side of Chicago at the pawn shop to hold on to it for me for an extra two weeks because I had a loan coming in and I was definitely coming back for it. But I needed my textbooks today. So I did get it back and I do still have it. While she wasn't successful in her first finals run, Corinne Marzullo came back and won it all later. I really had no idea that I was a potential winner at all until there was, you know, it's Talkeetna, so rumors get around. But uh, there was definitely a little bit of talk before I went to the bachelor auction that maybe it, like, I had won. But that's all. I, I really had no idea. I really didn't think I won. And so they announced. Tell, tell me about what it was like at the auction. Oh, it's a little intimidating, well, actually. Just, the, I mean, I'm, I know it is t- just talking to the guys, too, you know, up there strutting their stuff and everything and uh, just being on the catwalk. But, uh, yeah, you get pulled up on stage with all the bachelors up there in front of all the ladies. And uh, and so it was, yeah. <laughs> and, and you were not totally surprised, but still... I was, I, I, I was still fairly surprised, yeah. yes. After she's brought on stage, all 40 or so bachelors in that year's auction literally bow to the wilderness woman as she is presented with her crown. Unlike for some pageants and other competitions, the wilderness woman crown is rather practical, especially for someone who spends a lot of their time outside in the winter. I got a um, beautiful uh, fox hat. Fur, fur hat. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's really yes, nice. Yes, it's very nice. Mm-hmm. And, and very useful. Very useful, super warm, super soft. Yeah, I love it. Corinne isn't the only woman we've heard from who kept the Wilderness Woman title local. Margaret Maxner tells the story of how she took home the crown in part by excelling at a tricky event we've already discussed. I did really well at the catching of the fish. I remember that was a, that was a, I saved a lot of time with that. And the next thing that I did well at, right after I got to shoot Seal Talbot, who was wearing the moose costume, I got to shoot him with a paintball gun. And then you had to take these snowshoes off and climb up a ladder and ring a bell and then finish the race. And I remember instead of taking the snowshoes off, I just pulled my moon boots off and finished the, <laughs> finished the competition in you know knee-deep snow in my socks. Um, so I'm sure that gained me maybe a second. Um, And that was the year that I won, um, and I got 20,000 Alaska Airline miles, which was a big deal then. I know you can't really get anywhere for that these days, but back then, that was a ticket somewhere. And then I also was given this beautiful fox fur crown, if you will, Um, and this fox is from Curtis Bird, and then it was made by the very talented Amy Shipman, and so I do still have that as well, and I like to, you know, wear that to special events, like I did a rod start and things like that, but that was the year I won, and then, like I said before, you have to be 18 and unmarried, and so by the time 2010 came around, I was married, so... I have never had a chance to defend my crown and hopefully never will, I guess. (laughs) Back when getting donated air miles was easier, plane tickets were a common prize for the winner, going all the way back to the beginning of the contest. Deb Vaughn was there for the early Wilderness Woman races and says locals used to dominate. It was mostly local women. Barbara Mercer, Mary Palmer. I think Mary won that first year. And in those days... You got, they got it. She got a trip to Europe. (laughs) 
And uh, Barbara was a runner-up, so Mary took Barbara with her to the <laughs> on the trip. After the crowning of the Wilderness Woman, the bachelor auction begins in earnest, and there are plenty of stories about that, but we'll be saving them for episode two. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Blue Tarp as we kick off our second season. If you haven't listened to season one, you can catch up wherever you get your podcasts or at ktna.org. If you found this show as a podcast, please consider sharing it and leaving a review on the app where you found us. The Blue Tarp is a production of Talkeetna Community Radio, Inc. and KTNA Talkeetna. It is produced in partnership with the Talkeetna Historical Society. Our sponsors for Season 2 are Sheldon Chalet and Pam and Roger Robinson. Sponsorship opportunities for this season are still available. If you're interested in sponsoring the show, you can email supportktna at ktna.org. The Blue Tarp is also made possible in part by funds from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Elliot Hunker voiced our sponsor messages. Our interviewers for this episode were Holly Stinson and Cece Schoenberger. Archive tape was recorded by Clyde Connolly and Tina Dalkey. The Blue Tarp theme was written and performed by Larry Zarella. Other music included in Blue Tarp episodes was written and performed by Doug Geating, Larry Zarella, Deb Wessler, and Steve Durr. We would also like to give a special thanks to the members of the Blue Tarps editorial board. This episode was written, narrated, and produced by Philip Manning. You can find out more about the Blue Tarp, including how to support the show, at ktna.org. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you as we dive further into Season 2.